Hey, cheap astronomers. Steve Nalick, multimedia personality here. Once again, I managed to talk my way onto the fabulous Science on Top podcast, where I told a few stories, interrupted a few people, and shamelessly plugged the book. What follows is about 26 minutes of audio from Science on Top, episode 86. It's time we once again put science at the top of our agenda. We're back. This is Science on Top, episode 86, for Thursday the 14th of January, 2013. My name's Ed Brown, and with me today is an excellent crew, starting with former microbiologist Dr. Shane Joseph. G'day, Ed. High school science teacher Penny Dumsday. Hello, hello. From CheapAstro.com and the author of Astronomy Without a Telescope, the ebook, Steve Nerlich. Welcome back. Hi, Ed. And a lukewarm latte of intellectual incapacity, Lucas Randall. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to have to process that one a little bit. <laughs> that is a little gem from the Paul Keating insult generator. Right, a little right. I got over the holidays. <laughs> I know you're a huge fan of uh, one of Australia's great statesmen. <laughs> I don't make them like that anymore. It's a shame. No. Shane, what's the latest news about fat? And what's the difference between my spare tire and Lucas's flabby thigh? <laughs> <laughs> this is like... Is this, like Lucas. Is, this, is this what 2013 is going to be like? <laughs> Just, every time Lucas comes to the show, we belittle him so much. Wow. No, we love you, Lucas. Yeah. And your flabby thigh. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Um, yeah, this story is very interesting because it sort of suggests that there might be a different genetic basis for the different kinds of fat um, that we store in our bodies and specifically where men and women tend to store fat. Men tend to have what's called the beer belly, which is mm. you know, a nice big spare tyre around the... Around the um, just the front. The front. I mean, I've got one myself and I'm trying to get rid of it and it's just not going. Whereas with women, it's the opposite. It, it's hair shape, which yeah. is... heavier hips and thighs. Yeah. And- the whole thing got me wondering, is this why men wear pants and women have dresses? Because the dress would allow... <laughs> to hide the flabby thighs. Uh... You know what, you, you, people are laughing, but that actually, there might be a bit of truth in that. Okay, yeah. now here's where it gets interesting because... <laughs> I think we're on a tangent. <laughs> but for those interested in the history of fashion, trousers and pants are a relatively new invention, like happening sort of in the last 1,500 years. And before that, men were wearing dresses and all that sort of stuff. And it's actually the advent of riding on horseback that has gotten trousers and pants to become a um, common fashion requirement for men. And, of course, women would never ride horses because they're cooking and cleaning. And not, not my opinions, just a historical <laughs> viewpoint. So there you go. Horses are the reason that men wear pants and also to hide their flabby thighs, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Shane, what's the difference between where the fat is stored? Okay. <laughs> They found that the genes that, that are basically being expressed in thigh fat are very different. Like 125 genes that are expressed differently in belly fat than there are yeah, in thigh fat for, for men. Mm. And I think 218 genes are different in women. But um, 59 genes were shared between them in terms of what genes were expressed in the belly and what genes were expressed yeah. in the thigh. So there is also a bit of overlap between the sexes. It does say the most notable genes uh, that differed are the homeobox mm. genes which are well known for how they work in development. What the hell was that? Someone just <laughs> fell over. Sorry about that. My uh, chair had some issues. I, I suddenly I suddenly dropped about three inches. Uh, I'll swap to the other chair. 
those flabby thighs, Ed. They uh, they're letting me down. I'm sorry. <laughs> From reading this, it kept mentioning to the the pear shape that many women have, saying how good it is and how healthy it is, and women with a pear shape are less likely to have heart disease. Basically, you know, it seemed like a feel good story for pear shaped women. I, I felt. It was, it was something to, you know, they can go, well, that's good. I'm not going to try and work these thighs off anymore. See, flabby thighs, they'll save you. <laughs> Excellent. I'm, I'm glad that you're not going to get a heart attack from your flabby thighs. No. I suppose, I suppose the, um, the end result of all this is that this is still, still obviously early days. It doesn't really explain that much about obesity. And, but in terms of what kind of fat is good and what kind of fat is bad and if it, I mean if even they, maybe they can start looking at those genes that are being expressed or not expressed in the belly fat and yeah and see if there's some way to yeah stop them from operating so yeah or you know, what what effects they might have if they, on if they have an effect everything on growing, whatever yeah yeah I think it's also just worth noting that point that it's not always just about I've got to lose weight I have to lose weight mm. it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a bit of weight around the thighs mm. But it is a bad thing to have a lot of weight around the stomach, like my spare tyre. All right. Well, if you've ever had a test for tuberculosis or another bacterial respiratory condition, uh, you'll know it can take several days and sometimes even weeks to get results. Well, a new technology could speed that up dramatically by, um, I guess, detecting a, would you say, a signature left by the bacteria in the breath. Is that Mm. right, Shane? Yeah, that is right. So as Ed said... If you've ever had a bacterial infection and you need to get it tested for, the traditional way of doing it is by culturing. That can take a long time. I mean, some bugs grow very quickly overnight. Mm. Some, like TB, are very slow growing. And, and it's not even sure far it will grow, is it? Exactly, like... yeah. And and if it doesn't grow, that doesn't necessarily mean that you haven't got an infection. So it's a bit iffy. What is interesting about this technique is that this actually looks at the bacterial infection in situ or where it actually is in the body. So the idea here is that if you've got an infection and it's say, say it's a lower respiratory tract infection, the bacteria there will be producing certain chemical traces and they've called them volatile organic compounds and they're emitted in your breath. And the interesting thing is that this technique can actually pick them up in really, really small, really tiny traces to, to the part per trillion level, which is utterly amazing when you think about it. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's not only that, it's just differentiating little background bacterial signatures on top of all your normal organic compound signatures in your breath, which is something between, you know, 4,000 to 6,000 different compounds. Yeah, so... That's pretty cool. So I assume, you know, obviously this has got to have, you know, large human trials and everything before we can actually start walking into the doctor's consultation and essentially what, you'd be breathing into a bag or jar or something and they'd send that off to a pathologist? Well, it might even be on site. I'd be so much happier to breathe into a tube than to give a blood sample or to cough and wait... Hmm. Can I just ask, guys? I've when I read this story, I was I was kind of like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, it seemed pretty obvious <laughs> to me, and and I started reflecting on why I have always um, found that I can smell, like I can tell when someone has a cold by their breath, and yeah. and and it and it occurred to me maybe that's not normal. <laughs> uh, I just For you assume... to be sniffing people's breath <laughs> when they have a cold. <laughs> but it, 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 can I just ask? Can you guys smell when someone has a cold? No, I Can can't. I, but to, to be I, honest, I've, I've never tried. I have heard, no, Lucas, I have actually heard of people being able to do that or being yeah. able to smell a certain... It depends how good your, your, your sense of smell is. I mean, my sense of, sense of smell is pretty bad. Can't but some it's... people not smell like the asparagus smell? Or Sometimes, yeah. Something yeah. Like... It could be Lucas's special power. 
Maybe it is. Maybe it is. I, I channel the the flab thighs, and uh, and and I don't know. Yeah. What you can smell is very complex, and in between individuals, it's yeah. vastly different. So it wouldn't surprise me if you could, if that was actually true in your case, Lucas, or another. Okay. People. Like I, it was just one of those things that I've just always assumed everyone can. No. And then <laughs> when no, I was reading. I start thanks, Steve. When and when I was reading this story, I, I I it occurred to me, and I googled it, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not seeing I'm not seeing a whole lot of references to this. There's a lot of people saying, do people have bad breath when they're sick? Like you know, questions and stuff like that. But but yeah, I thought that was very interesting. So I'm interested, listeners, if you can smell people with colds, can you let me know? I'm just curious. Right in uh, <laughs> podcast at scienceontop.com. Or leave a comment at scienceontop.com slash 86 for this episode. Um, but generally, Lucas, if someone tells me they've got a cold, the last thing I want them doing is breathing anywhere near me, so I tend to steer clear anyway. Well, like, uh, I, I find, because, like, with the kids, for example, like, I can sense when they're getting a cold just by the, their breath. But, of course, there could be a uh, confirmation bias here where I just forget the times that I smell that smell and then, you know. Need some random oh. children coming in your house. I do, and a control group of... Uh, mm. <laughs> we'll wait for Lucas's uh, large-scale human trial there. <laughs> but in the meantime, one place you wouldn't want to be smelling someone else's breath if they've got a cold would be if you're trapped on a spaceship going to Mars. Steve, do you want to tell us a bit about the Mars 500 mission and uh, why they're all fat like me? Sure. <laughs> I thought I'd take the pressure off Lucas for a bit there. The Mars 500 simulation mission was run out of Russia. It actually finished in November 2011. They're just sort of pulling the data together now to get a story out of it. So the key findings seem to be that the team of people who were essentially locked in this semi-sealed room for 500 days, it tended to be the case that they naturally started moving around less. So they all had these sort of sensors and you could track how they were moving through the the sealed building. So uh, the story uses this word hypokinesis. They developed hypokinesis, meaning they moved around less or they were kinetically challenged, I was thinking. (laughs) It's a word they made up for the sake of making up a word, I think. I think so. Hypokinesis. It does make perfect sense, though. It's like it's hey. an appropriate word. But I'm sorry, I'm suffering from hypokinesis. <laughs> like, no, you're lazy. Get up and move. And they also favoured darker places in the building. And uh, this, this seemed to be related to them sleeping longer as well. So uh, this, this led to the... The title of the story being Mars Astronauts Becoming Couch Potatoes. What one interesting thing was there seems to be a link or perhaps a a strategy they might implement in a Mars mission to have more blue light within the artificial light that the astronauts live in. That seemed to sort of wake them up. Or if they are in blue light, they were less um, likely to go into this hypokinetic state and sleep longer. That's interesting. I wonder why that would be necessarily... Yeah, I've, I've read some stuff yeah. about uh, this fairly recently as well, about the role of blue light, because I'm thinking, what the heck are you talking about? Blue light? You know, and you're saying, yeah, yeah, because blue light, you know, it signals for your body to start waking up. I thought it was quite, it was quite interesting. Mm. Um, the other thing I thought on reading this story, they, they described the, the facility, right, that these people were in. Yeah. 
So they had... Um, a mock spaceship, yeah. A mock spaceship. I mean, <laughs> how cool does this sound? This actually sounds like you'd be sort of living out a, a sci-fi... Dr- I would have actually gone into character, I think, if I was in there. I would have. I reckon I would have been... like I would have pretended I was on Firefly or something like that. I think it would have been awesome. He's pretending to be Data again. <laughs> <laughs> but 500 days in this place. Wow. 520, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I think, think it was, yeah. yeah. Ed, how many days was the Russian cosmonaut Valery Polyakov? I murdered his name there, sorry, Valery. How many days was he in orbit on Mir? 437 days. That's a lot of days. And do you, can you imagine how weak he would have been when he got back to Earth? Well, it's interesting. He actually made a point of not doing the usual cosmonaut thing of sort of collapsing out of the spacecraft and letting people pick him up and carry him to a chair. He insisted on walking to the chair himself. I don't know what the distance was, probably 20 metres. But that was him showing that you could be in space and indeed in zero gravity for that sort of period and then land on Mars and be able to walk around without collapsing under your own weight. Well, the walking around Mars and not collapsing on your own mate. Wait, I get that. It's a lower yeah, gravity. Yeah, 40% G it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I quite liked your slip of tongue there. Collapsing under your own mate. That's... <laughs> <laughs> After you've sniffed to see if he's got a cold, of course. <laughs> okay, it says they suffered from hypokinesis. It didn't say they all turned gay. <laughs> not that there's any they, they were all men, weren't they? I think so, on the uh, Mars 500. As, uh, as astronaut trainers, engineers and doctors. Actually, the, the one of the guys said he, uh, he he only got through it because he played one of the shooter, one of the first-person oh, shooters. Was it Call of Duty? No, yeah, no. Something like that. He said he, he just spent the last few weeks just playing it constantly, and it was the only thing that got him through. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, if you want to go to Mars... You've got to have the right stuff. Steve, what are the uh, requirements that Mars One, which we've talked about before, the uh, guys trying to do the Big Brother in space thing, uh, they've released their, the qualifications that you need in order to be a contestant on their reality TV show. You have to be intelligent. I wonder how they're going to measure that on a, <laughs> a Big Brother sort of show. Um, yeah, it, it just mm. seemed to be fit, young and intelligent with a... The basic uh, requirements. And if people don't we recall the think- story, uh, this is a project coming out of the Netherlands. Their plan is to land on Mars by 2023, and it would seem they're going to fund the whole thing through this reality TV show that, that will involve picking the crew and supposedly putting them through eight years of training, which uh, mm. oh, I wonder if they'll keep the audience that long. It would be interesting, particularly if someone gets voted off the yes. colony. <laughs> yes. So they'll somehow work down to a group of four people. Four? To, well, they will have a flight every two years, so four people. Ah, will. okay. So it's... First it'll be an unmanned installation, then they'll fly the first crew there in 2023, and then uh, that first crew will sort of set things up, and then another group comes and so forth. But the thing is, it's a one-way trip. It's... it's yeah. So they fly there, the first four fly there, and then they set up. Imagine, like... Once you're evicted, you're really <laughs> evicted. But, but it, it said in the story that um, those chosen will be employed by Mars One during their Earth-based training and for the length of their time on the Red Planet. That's all their lives. That's the whole... They're, they're never coming back. And what do they do with their money? <laughs> <laughs> Penny, let's go back to Earth now and talk about baby sharks. Not even baby sharks. It's like embryonic sharks. Yeah. 
Shark pups. I never knew pups. Yeah, I never knew they were called pups. But anyway, shark pups. So we're talking about sharks that are still inside their egg case. And now, look, I don't know about, like, personally, I can't remember when I was an embryo, I doubt. (laughs) But I don't think I had a finely honed sense of danger. I suspect I had no sense of danger at all. The good old days when I was an embryo. Things were better then. (laughs) When sharks are embryos, they can actually behave in a way that increases their survival chances. And this is so cool because sometimes when you look at innate behaviours and you see a human baby doing something, it, it looks like a little human that can really, you know, plan ahead and think. And even when they're doing those reflexes, like when you brush their cheek and they turn and suck, well, of course you'd want to do that. It's logical. Yeah. But here's a shark. It's an embryo. It's not even born. And it can, if it senses a predator coming, and they can sense this by sensing the electric field that a predator puts out, they will curl up their tail around the sort of the yolk sac bit, their body, and stop breathing or respiring for a little bit and that basically shuts down their electric field or it really minimizes it and so the predators so the, their metabolism just shuts down or basically. just slows it's just yeah. it said they stop breathing like they're not quite breathe i guess through their gills if they've got yeah. proto gills but yeah so we know that adult sharks detect prey using electric fields so it's not surprising that the embryo has that same what's, ability. But what's the range we're talking here though you know it didn't it, say yeah. in the article well that the bit that i read yeah, it's not a particularly detailed article. I also think it probably would depend on how old the embryo is. I mean, at a certain point, it would have to develop those oh, skills. Yeah. But, um, but even then, like, it's interesting. even calling it a skill, like, it's not a skill. It just happens that those embryos... Ability, then. Yeah. yeah, it's really it just, cool. And it also shows... It got me thinking about the difference between um, different stages of life for different animals. Yeah. I mean, um, well, I think, actually, most sharks give birth to live young, but uh, there's a few of them that ha- lay eggs, or lay, whatever, distribute eggs. Penny mentioned before when she said about the, you know, this ability, it struck me as, as very similar to, to, you know, human babies. They respond to stimuli as well. Like, for example, human babies respond both to light and to, to you know, sound, depending on how far along they are in development. So this didn't seem any different to me. I mean, sharks have got the lateral line, which allows them to, you know, detect uh, electromagnetism. Mm. Why would this just not be a stimuli to them? It could well be not that they're trying to avoid a predator, but they're just like, what is that? You know, that's, that's I mean, weird. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's no intent involved. It's basically, as yeah. said, it's a reflex. It's, they, yeah. they sense a yeah. certain field. It's like, oh, now... It has- Something unknown That's is true. coming. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Um, Steve, you're currently doing your PhD about jobs in science. So you must be pretty disappointed then that the Obama administration is not going to build a Death Star because that would be heaps of jobs, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't it? Well, it was, it was put forward as a, a great job creation scheme. I'm sure that would have been the case. <laughs> But yes, it was uh, turned down. The White House responded saying that spending $850 quadrillion <laughs> might be a bit of overkill, particularly since it can be taken out by one guy in an X-Wing fighter. <laughs> one guy with the force. No one ever gives the force the credit it deserves. <laughs> but, I mean, what a stupid design just to have this thing that if you shoot down here, it'll blow up. Why did he even have to fly along those little canal things? Why couldn't he just attack that thing directly? Because the rest was too well protected. Don't you? Didn't you watch the? Fir- oh God! The briefing explained it all. There were some uh, some very 
amusing quotes, though I felt in the in the White House response. It was a brilliant uh, response. It really was. There, there was one where they they mentioned. Should, sorry, Lucas, you can. I'll just jump in. I should clarify what we're actually talking about. There was a petition. Have you done that yet? To, <laughs> no, not really. So this was a uh, petition made to the White House, which has a site called We the People, Your Voice in Our Government, where people can write um, suggestions. And if it gets 20, uh, is it, yeah, 25,000 yep. uh, votes, if 25,000 people think, yeah, that's a good idea, the White House will respond to it and say, get out, this is our job, we know what we're doing. <laughs> and uh, Lucas, you were going to sort of talk about a bit of their response. Well, yeah, Sorry. I mean, you've you covered some of it already, but the, one of, one of the, the quotes I love was, the, the Obama administration does not support blowing up planets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, and they um, also um, say, if, you know, we'd like you as future, you know, future generations to actually study science and, tech, and engineering and get into this sort of field, and you know, which is which is nice. It's a nice little touch. Actually, I'll tell you a geeky reason why the Death Star is a really stupid design, <laughs> which is that it's a sphere. <laughs> so you got this low surface area to volume ratio. So any anything that happens inside it will generate heat and because it's got such a small surface area it's very hard to unload that heat particularly when it's floating around in a vacuum so essentially yeah. the whole thing's going to melt notwithstanding it'll gravitationally collapse as if it is the size of a small moon couldn't you dissipate that heat i don't know in one sort of large <laughs> ray or yeah, something destroy a planet like, that's right add, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's the secret behind the technology was just let's build something that gets really really hot and then deflect that so but also it's a, a wasteful way to do it you wouldn't you just want to destroy all the life the biosphere essentially well yeah and leave and leave the planet there that you can then colonise. That's exactly... I mean, obviously, you've got the shock and awe value of destroying a planet, especially <laughs> when you're doing it as a demonstration to Princess Leia. But <laughs> if you go and grab a you know a few kilometre wide asteroid and fling it at the planet, that'll do the job. <laughs> that'll do it. That'll kill all life on it. So, you know, you don't have to blow up the whole thing. Personally, I'd rather a Genesis device myself. That's it. God! That was awesome. <laughs> all right. Wow. Um, while we're speaking of space and not quite so fictional um steve do you want to tell us about astronomy without a telescope of the ebook oh thank you ed uh yes i wrote a book and it's uh really just a virtual book an ebook uh it's not available in print but um this was uh, an anthology of uh writing for the website universe today for about two years i i wrote a weekly blog post there so i sort of pulled the the best stories I had into some sort of structure within this book. So the six sections, I write a little intro to each one and hopefully it all sort of flows reasonably well. Then I ended off with how the universe will probably end. And uh, it's three ninety nine US, but only two ninety nine Australian dollars. For some reason, <laughs> Apple have this funny conversion thing where they just took a dollar because our dollars worth slightly more than US dollars anyway. Um, yeah, so you we can, can that stuff. No. yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> uh, it's now on iTunes and iBooks, so very easy to get onto your iDevices. But yeah, I'll, I'd better not plug it too it's hard. On the Kindle we... store as well. So if you use the yep. Kindle app yep. on your devices, you can use that. And yeah, you, you've got all the major formats anyway, so pretty much anything should be able to read it, even an actual desktop computer. Mm. 
Um, I'm just looking at one of your old articles, Steve, on Universe Today from 2011. Um, it's the Massey's Energy one. Um, and, and I just scrolled down. I know you... You know the old adage, "Don't read the comments." But I number one rule of the internet. <laughs> I started reading yeah. comments, and people like most trolls hit you with, you know, it's like, "Oh, you're shit," or you know, <laughs> "What you said is wrong." Blah blah. blah. You know, they, they just hurl abuse. But these people come and hurl math at you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. That's, awesome. That is one of the things I like about Universe Today is that it is obviously it's a specialist sort of uh, audience that they have. And you generally get a lot of very intelligent comments, and particularly on on a lot of your stories, Steve, was that you end up with quite this very intricate uh, discussion afterwards. So the article's great, but there's an added value that you get from a lot of the comments. Yes, yes, that was always my experience. And it's very rare to be able to say that about any website, really. (laughs) Added value from comments. I mean, that's not something you hear. No. So go to scienceontop.com and leave a comment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you want the links to uh, where to get uh, Astronomy Without a Telescope, the e-book, you can go to scienceontop.com slash A-W-A-T or cheapastro.com. I'm sure you've got links to it in there. Steve? Yep. Excellent. Thank you, Ed, for letting me plug that. I appreciate it. No, it's, it's a great book, and I think people should read it because a lot of you, know, you don't have to get, as we've talked about this before, you don't need an expensive telescope to appreciate the universe around us. So thanks for writing it. Um, as I said, cheapastro.com is where you can find Steve Nerlich and uh, find out how to do astronomy without spending a fortune. And he's the author of Astronomy Without a Telescope, the ebook. Uh, thanks for joining us, Steve. It's a pleasure, Ed. Anytime. And, of course, thank you, Shane, Penny, and Lucas, and Lucas's thighs for another great show. <laughs> uh, wow. You, you can find all the stories we talked about today at scienceontop.com slash 86. And please leave your feedback uh, there. It's always great to hear from you, and we value your comments. <laughs> Our theme music was written and produced by the upstanding members, and we'll be back again next week putting science on top of the agenda. Join us then. 